Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be having a different sort of conversation than usual. We've had a lot of authors on this show, especially over the last six months. We usually have a couple of, of our shows every single month uh, are authors of books that have particularly interesting analyses of culture and history and politics. And usually those authors are talking about a recent book. When we had Dennis Prager on, he was talking about his recent book on Deuteronomy. Andrew Clavin was talking about his recent book on the Romantics. But after I wrote an essay on an anti-communist from the 50s, George Earl, for the European Conservative, where I'm a contributing editor, I was contacted by author Diana West. She's a, a journalist who used to work with the Washington Times, and she's the author of American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character, which is a book that came out uh, quite a few years ago now, and she offered to send me a copy. I'm just going to read you the blurb from the book so you get an idea of what it is all about. Part real-life thriller, part national tragedy, American betrayal lights up the massive Moscow-directed penetration of America's most hallowed halls of power, revealing not just the familiar struggle between communism and the free world, but in the hidden war between those wishing to conceal the truth and those trying to expose the increasingly official web of lies. American betrayal is America's lost history, a chronicle that pits Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and other American icons who shielded overlapping communist conspiracies against investigators, politicians, defectors, and others, including Joe McCarthy, who tries to tell the American people the truth. American betrayal shatters the approved histories of an era that begins with FDR's first inauguration, when happy days were supposed to be here again, and ends when we win the Cold War. It is here amid the rubble where Diana West focuses on World War II, the Cold War deal with the devil in which America surrendered her principles in exchange for a series of of big lies whose preservation soon became the basis of our leader's own self-preservation. It was this moral surrender to deception and self-deception, West argues, that sent us down the long road to moral relativism, political correctness, and other cultural ills that have left us unable to ask hard questions. Now, one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in this book is simply due to the fact that a lot of very interesting books now on what actually happened during the Cold War are being released. Ben McIntyre, who is a historian and an author for The Times, has released a number of fascinating books on, on the extent to which the KGB had infiltrated the London-England establishment. And West's book really, really is fascinating. And so she agreed to come on and have a conversation about that book. And this is that conversation. So, Diana West, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and talk about your book. To begin with, maybe give a bit of a biographical background for, for our, our listeners who might not be familiar with your work. Oh, of course. I've been at this a very long time. I uh, went to Washington, D.C. in the 1980s mm. as a reporter at the Washington Times, which was at that moment a pretty young conservative newspaper. And um, we had a real problem there because the ownership was the Unification Church. And so we had double, we were writing stories as honestly as we could and also coming from, I wouldn't say a conservative viewpoint, but a more um, mixed viewpoint. There were reporters of all kinds from all different papers um, and we were up against the Washington Post. And so that was where I kind of cut my teeth as a reporter. I did many 
different tasks at the paper from features to campaign coverage to movie critic. Um, later on, I became a freelance writer working for slick glossy magazines which used to be a wonderful way before the internet to make a living and I I can attest to that um, being a, a great period that just ended about the time I got into it and after that I went back to the Washington Times um, as an editorial writer and I started a column a weekly column which went into syndication um, in the United States for about 15 years and I also let's see at a certain point, I decided to um, drop the editorial writing. And it was actually kind of funny because now nowadays everybody's remote, right? But um, I had been doing my editorial page work for the Washington Times, you know, three editorials a week kind of thing from a distance, from, from a bureau, let's say. And as soon as I moved back to Washington, D.C., we had a new editorial page editor, the late lamented Tony Blankley, who was a well-known Washington figure. Um, who had just come in to be editorial page editor, and he wanted everyone in the office. And so this was sort of an early remote back to work kind of um, tussle. And I just realized with my life, I had young children, a husband, home. It was just easier for me to continue working at home. So we, we kept the column going at the paper and in syndication, and it gave me the opportunity to write my first book, which was a good thing, um, The Death of the Grown-Up which is the subtitle is How America's Arrested Development is Bringing Down Western Civilization. And that came out in 2007. And uh, it was really a whack at understanding why we couldn't discuss Islam in the post 9-11 world with a, a big cultural decline component. <laughs> so it was, an, it was kind of an interesting book for me to write and research and try to come to grips with. And... Um, I wasn't satisfied with the explanation at a certain point that we were just sophomoric and juvenile and couldn't have an adult conversation, which was, of course, a metaphor. It wasn't the main thrust, but there was something to it, having watched the trajectory of culture go downhill um, in in the post, particularly the post-war, or post-World War II years, I should say, in America. And um I start kept working on this. I'd become also, um, I'd gone, believe it or not, I was a CNN uh, pundit <laughs> on the old Lou Dobbs show. And, you know, working through these ideas and seeing what you could say and you couldn't say in a column on TV. I mean, this was a real education. And what I ended up going into, um, I had a real epiphany in about 2008 when I read a book. Everybody should read one of those light bulb popping books, but this one for me was called Blacklisted by History um, by M. Stanton Evans, and I believe the subtitle is The Untold Story of Senator Joe McCarthy and um, something America's Enemies or something like that. It's a very long <laughs> subtitle, but it basically was a revision of the history of Joseph McCarthy in America. Um, who He is the devil dog of American history, and this is all according to secondary, tertiary sources at this point. And what Stanton Evans did, he was a fine journalist and a really good re detective, I would add. He went back and basically assembled a primary source library or archive on Joseph McCarthy. And frankly, this was a life work. I got to know Stan Evans in the last few years of his life, uh, which was a gift to me to get to know him. Um, and I learned a lot about how he'd done these things. And he'd essentially been working on this book in one way or another for many decades and, and assembling this archive 
over over many years. And and of course, it also coincided with certain archives, government archives opening, for example, um, congressional executive hearings that after a certain 40 years or something become available, that kind of thing. So he was working with new documents and going back and finding old documents. And he rewrote this, this the history of, of Senator McCarthy in such an inspiring way that I finished this very long book, um, very meticulous book. It's probably 700 plus pages about what the McCarthy period. And I thought, wow, if, if this, if, if this was all wrong, what else is wrong in our history? You know, does it start with, it can't just start and finish with Joseph McCarthy. And, and keep in mind that I'd been dealing with sort of a similar period, um, the post 9-11 years, of every time you try to discuss or study or debate the what the effect of Islam on the West, which was a big part of my editorial writing and column thinking of, of that, that decade, um, you ran into similar problems. We were called Islamophobes in that period. And as I'm reading through about the 1950s and earlier in the United States, they were called red baiters. And there were these very similar tactics to stop conversations, to stop thinking, to stop um, survival, th these various things. So I got very interested in, in the subversion story, and I just decided to take it on myself to see if I could find a point at which this, this movement to really squelch debate in an ideological way entered into our history here. So I knew it wasn't, couldn't, didn't start in the 50s, didn't start in the 40s, I ended up going back to the Roosevelt years, Franklin Roosevelt administration, and essentially um, found a very important date in American history, really world history, that no one really knows, which is November 16th, 1933, which is the date that FDR decided uh, to recognize this murderous Bolshevik regime of Stalin's in the Soviet Union. And this was counter acting um, the judgment of four previous U.S. presidents and six secretaries of state. And it was a really a watershed moment, and we can get into why, but this was essentially kind of my, that's kind of my overview of how I got into this kind of history and this kind of storytelling and this kind of um, inversion of what Stan always called court history, history told by the victors, which frankly, the more you look at it, the more you realize pretty much everything is a lie that we are taught. So it's a big job and there's a lot more to do. It's very interesting because uh, it's on the right, I would say a lot of, uh, of sort of American nationalist myths have been questioned, especially over the last 20 years or so. And I know um, a lot of people, when they think of FDR, would think of Conrad Black's massive biography, um, which I think for millions of dollars, he purchased a bunch of FDR's papers. That's one of the things that got him into trouble initially. And I know that he went back and forth with you several times in National Review about your analysis of FDR. But is it safe to say this is and maybe this this just speaks to the kind of historical reading that I do, but that at a, at a bare minimum, historians now accept that he was catastrophically wrong uh, about Joseph Stalin and the Cold War? Because for me, the consensus of many of the people that I've read is that FDR was at best sort of 
pleasantly misguided and that Churchill now looks far more prescient than FDR does if you're looking at the events that kicked off the Cold War and allowing Stalin, for example, to get to Berlin first and, and what have you. Well, I would say thinking historians or thinking citizens, citizen journalists, just people interested who are looking at this rationally, definitely have reached the conclusion you're talking about in terms of this catastrophe that FDR presented. Um, most sort of mainstream conservatives, I think it's fair to say, it's always hard to say most anything, but the general trend still remains that he was, that World War II was, was a, was an excellent and, and, um, prosecuted exactly as it should have been war, which absolutely is not true, and that FDR was a great wartime leader. I think on the right in America, probably most cons many conservatives would say, well, his, his economic policies were a disaster. I think that may be where the consensus is. However, these are, what I discovered is that these are twin prongs of the same uh, uh, fork, if you will, um, it, it's all revolutionary. It was a very revolutionary uh, period. It was a very revolutionary administration. It really, some people call it America's second revolution because it did revolutionize our economic system for sure. And then as, you know, the depression ground on and it wasn't, certainly wasn't improving the lot of, of people in, in the United States, the war becomes along and actually becomes a great large government employment program, but it also becomes this vector of 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 complete reimagining, redrawing, re 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 um, just revol. Rev I'm trying to avoid the word revolution, but it was a kind of revolution in Europe and Asia that was essentially catalyzed by World War II because of something very important, which had a lot to do with the economic policies, and this was the massive incursion of the left into. United States institutions, British institutions, I'm sure Canadian is, yes, Canadian institutions, all institutions. This was, this was an all out war intelligence war that was un, going on under people's noses. And it was um, partly made possible by that date in American history, November 16th, 1933, which normalized the Soviet Union yeah. in exchange for a piece of paper that actually um, was an agreement that the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, Soviet Union, would immediate would never seek to overthrow the United States government. Would not um, uh, plant agents in the United States. Would not uh, uh, support people trying to. I mean, this is the thing that's so fascinating about that document. It's not very long, but it it literally is 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 alive from start to finish in the sense that all of these things were underway in terms of trying to overthrow the United States government, trying to plant agents in the United States and establish networks, etc. But the normalization of the Soviet Union on that piece of paper also validated and gave a, a really a shiny green go-card to various uh, uh, you know, hot leftists to enter government, fellow travelers, close-in communists, and a massive cadre of Soviet agents, straight-up agents, under discipline to uh, the Kremlin. This entered the United States government. And this is why we can look back, which is what I do in American Betrayal. I look back at the war itself to examine, well, if now we have established a consensus, there is a consensus that these agents existed. They have been identified um, in various reveals of archives. And what had not been done, amazingly to me, in any sort of um, 
conservative fashion was actually to look at, well, if all these people are in these positions in the White House, in the State Department, in the Justice Department, in the ward, everywhere in the government, and in related institutions such as media and so on, um, what did they do? You know, what, in other words, it's not enough just to identify them. If you remember, there was kind of a craze years ago for, for this book called Where's Waldo and be these mm-hmm. big graphics, very complicated drawings, and you were supposed to find the the little figure Waldo in these impossible mazes and things. It really struck me as that was the state of Soviet archive analysis when I started got into this 10 years ago, um, because it was basically all a matter of identifying where the Alger Hisses were, Alger Hiss being the most famous, but we've got hundreds and hundreds more identified. Where were they? Well, that's not really that great just to identify them. What was their portfolio? Whom did they hire? What did they do? What did they say at the Great War conferences? What did they you know, make happen? What did they prevent from happening? I mean, these are the questions that have to be examined. And um, that's what I tried to do. That's That was exactly what became the mission of that book. It didn't start that way, but it, it, it just, in fact, it started a, to be a completely different book, to tell you the truth. But just the evidence as I uncovered this, what's, you know, the better metaphor, as I unpeeled this onion, became very clear that this was where the study had to go. And it was great because this is where it had not gone before in any sort of methodical fashion. So that's what the book is you know, substantially about. It is interesting to me that American Betrayal is one of the first books that says, okay, if all of these different people we now know were associated with the Soviet Union, some of them, you know, recruited by the KGB, uh, some of them planted uh, long before. On one hand, like, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but because this is just based on my reading, which would be far more limited than yours, that Great Britain has been forced to reckon with the influence and the extent to which they were infiltrated due to the very high-profile cases of double agents like, you know, Kim Philby, who actually ran counterintelligence, uh, you know, for for MI MI six, and then uh, what was the fellow who actually ran the Queen's Art Gallery? Um, oh yes, got um. Uh, Burg- uh, not Burgess. Um, oh, it, I'm blanking. Burgess was Burgess was one of the defectors as well. But right, Burgess and McLean. His and, first name was uh, Anthony. I just forget his second Blunt. name. Blunt. Yes, there we go. Uh, Sir Anthony <laughs> Blunt, right? So because right. of because of the nature, well, so the British establishment is much smaller and more insular, and so some of these very high profile cases yes. forced a bit of a reckoning. Although, of course, there's always the rumor that Philby was allowed to defect back to Moscow because the established one uh, establishment wanted to avoid the embarrassment of a public trial in which even more would be discovered. But in the U.S., again, you're you're right. We we know about Alger Hiss. We know about all these very individual examples, but the extent to which these people, we know that there was essentially members of Roosevelt's staff who were working for Stalin, you know, with him at, you know, these major war conferences during the Second World War, and that there was, you know, the German resistance inside Nazi Germany that wanted to cut a deal with the Allies to prevent Russia from, from encroaching on the West, and that Roosevelt primarily was the one who ignored these calls and, and, and didn't want to follow up and, and see if this could could be possible and that these things were outsourced to those connected to Stalin. And 
it's not unfair to say that if the U.S. government had not been infiltrated by by agents affiliated with the KGB, that World War II could have could have uh, taken a different course. And so, oh, absolutely, yes. What are some of the key when you say we don't so much of what we we know about our history isn't true? What are some of the things that you detail in American Betrayal? that most Americans or Westerners would not be aware of, but that are extremely significant to the history we think we know? Yes, well, you touch on really one of the most shocking and outrageous and horrifying discoveries that it was a discovery to me. There were people back in the day who who realized this, but the story could not get out at the time because the media wouldn't let it out. The government was such that it was already subverted in my view. I mean, this is, this is, I think, the great lesson that things we think are new to our time were actually well underway in terms of, of blocking the truth and blocking um, the anti-communists and blocking liberty, essentially. So yes, I think one of the most horrifying moments was this realization that had these anti-Nazi, anti-communist Germans from all branches of life. I mean, you had religious, you had military, you had very famously Admiral Canaris, who was head of uh, Nazi intelligence, working to, and others working to 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 develop their underground in conjunction with the Western Allies to overthrow Hitler and present him to the British and the Americans, and essentially look their 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 condition was they wanted help, as you allude to, to prevent the Red Army. Uh, from destroying uh, the West in Europe, from from moving into a vacuum when that would happen when the when the German army collapsed, the Nazi army collapsed. Um, this was a horrifying realization because it was a real it was a real situation. The pieces were in place, the actors were ready, and it could have ended the war at, at by 1943. 1943 is a very significant point in World War II because in 1943, you still had the Red Army, the Stalin's army, was still inside the Soviet boundary of the day. They had not moved into Eastern Europe. They had not moved into Central Europe. They had not gotten to Berlin. So had you had this amazing turn of of events, the world would have been the world would we we would not have any of the problems we have today i'm sure we'd have different problems but the course of history is such that all the 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 tyranny that we're facing today the various wars that we've undergone the destruction of the west of the christianity of the family i mean a lot of these things could really not have gotten off the ground had you not had the events that saw half of europe seized uh the ongoing uh, march of the frankfurt school and the rest of of, of Europe and the United States. And of course, you would not have seen the cataclysm in China. I mean, you would not have seen Mao, in other words, take over China. I mean, these these are these are still the defining events of our time, even as we've lost all connection to them. And there have been so many intervening cataclysms and wars and so on that uh, cloud our, our cloud the lineage, but it's still there. It's still everything was set in motion. So when you actually realize that communist agents, fellow travelers, ideological communists were able to accomplish this, and I would say it's not just the United States government. They were in the British government. They were in the German government. They were in the Japanese government. I mean, this was an intelligence war of such effectiveness and sophistication, certainly for the day, um, 
it, it, it ran rings around everyone and um, all the good guys and or the good guys were just too sparse at that moment, perhaps. But it's an amazing thing to, to realize the level of saturation or tipping point of I call it in, in America betrayal. I, the metaphor I use is it was very much akin to an intelligence army occupation of Washington, D.C. You, you were not you were seeing these governments and again, on both sides of, of the war, which is a very it's a very KGB kind of thing to be involved on both sides of a war. Um, you were seeing this, um, essentially, these governments used as cat's paws to create a communist world. Now, surprising thing to people in the West, you ask what's surprising to readers, we look at that war still, even at whatever rate of literacy people have in history, we still look back at that war as a shining moment that defeated a terrible kind of fascism uh, knows Nazism um, and and also in Japan, which is often very kind of put off to the side in these matters. But people look back on Nazi Germany and the defeat of Nazi Germany as this shining moment in Western history when what was really going on, when you step back and start looking at what was happening, you realize that what, what the West was doing, it was destroying Germany on one side of the communist world and Japan, which is the other bookend or the other block on expansion on the other side. And then you, what do you see happen? You see this massive expansion of, of communist power that put tens of hundreds of millions of people into slavery, misery, death, um, psychological brutalism. I mean, it, it, the, the, the results are so staggering, it's almost hard to think of them. And just when you look at the toll, the just, when you look at the death toll of the war itself and you think, well, actually most of the losses in World War II happened after 1943, and that would include the concentration camps, the fire bombings of the European cities, German cities, things like that. And then of course, you know, a few years down the road to look at what happened in China and the rise of Mao and the, and the tens of millions of people killed because of that. This is a very consequential piece of history that has been so successfully hidden, concealed, and indeed made very radioactive by people like Conrad Black, like certain conservatives in America, um, former communists like David Horowitz, Ronald Radosh, people who did not want this, this, this narrative that has been ruling us, this liberal narrative that's been ruling us ever since the war, to be reexamined. And it's a very it's a very strange phenomenon that I bumped into once the book came out, but it was extremely instructive, and um, uh, you know very revealing about you know the importance of to even these people to keep things quiet and and forgotten, and you just have to um, you know ask yourself why, because it's such an important thing to understand um, right to this moment. So. You know, I'm really glad you're interested in it and and find it of interest to your your listeners. Well, it's very interesting because I would have. So I think that um, almost all the narratives are true in different ways, and that in some ways we're looking at different aspects. And when you talk about an intelligence war, we're almost talking about a different war. So the stories of you know like the boys who went up Omaha Beach, and you know the farm boys who, you know who liberated most of Europe. That story is true. That doesn't make the story that you're telling any less true. The rise of Nazi Germany. Yeah, if we're talking about the Western. 
And if we're talking about Western mistakes, we we wouldn't have time on this podcast, but we'd have to camp out in 1914 to 1918 and then 1919 Versailles for a while. What I find um, particularly interesting about this is I was going to ask you this question because I'm sure you read Peter Hitchens' book, uh, The Phony Victory, which is his re-examination of the Second World War. Well, I've read about it. Yeah, I haven't actually had a chance yet. Yeah. And so his book kind of incurred a very similar response across the pond to what your book did, I think, in, in North America, which is that he was he was targeting a lot of myths. Um, he was targeting a lot of things people believed about themselves, uh, whereas he kind of lays out a whole bunch of stories that weren't told prior. Um, the revenge killings that took place shortly after World War II and the, in Czechoslovakia and elsewhere. Um, similarly, of course, he I think this is pretty well-trod territory, but he revisits the firebombings of Dresden and Hamburg and discusses the fact that in his view, they're morally unacceptable. Um, and one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is uh, Edmund Burke always says you need these, these myths that bind society together uh, and, and, and they have an inherent purpose to them. And when I finished uh, Hitchens' book on, on, on the phony victory, for example, he makes the case that World War II for a godless culture has largely replaced the Christian religion in the minds of, of, of Christians who recognize that Christianity no longer holds sway in the minds of conservatives who need these sort of national myths to bind us together, to point to in America this sort of Norman Rockwell time of the four freedoms and, and the sun leaving home or returning home uh, in Great Britain. You know, the Battle of Britain is sort of the defining myth um, of, of, of the British character. Don't these myths have a certain value to them? And, and what is the value of debunking them? Because I remember reading through I remember reading through Hitchens' myth and thinking, you know what, considering the new myths on the horizon, this isn't a terrible one for a majority of people to believe in, to be honest. Well, that's an interesting question. And before I answer, I'd like to agree with you. Yes, I am not talking about the soldiers at all. My father was a soldier. My father was part of the um, liberation of France. He was D-Day plus two and and fought um, his battles starting at St. Battle of St. Lo. So I, I am not in any way impugning the remarkable heroism of any soldiers at all. This is about the betrayal of those soldiers and including the POWs, the, the, the GIs who never came home and so on and so forth. But it, it's impugning the leadership who is ruthless in its use and of 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 young men and and civilizations for their own insane plans and and you know it is it is really speaks to perversity of the leaders um not the people but to your question about do do nations need these myths to pull together let's take the word myth away and call it lie do we need lies to bind us together no I, I, I do reject that in the sense that the truth is more important to bind a people together so that they can identify who's telling the truth to them, who is a good leader, who is a moral leader. Where, so myths about the elites, I would agree with you about people like FDR, yeah. but I wouldn't say lies so much as, as where you focus. Because again, when yeah. Hitchens says the focus is on the Battle of Britain, when you point out the heroism of the ordinary people, it's not so much uh, that your book debunks those books, <laughs> but it's where. Yeah. But, but if you focus on that to the exclusion of what happens in yeah. your book, then, then we do create a myth because we are like our version of the war is a very narrow version of the war telling only one 
one aspect of the story. So I, I don't refer here to the deliberate deceits about people like FDR and the hagiographies that are regularly written about him still. I more mean um, when you say we need to re-examine World War II in the light of what we know um, and fundamentally changing the way people think about it. That's that's yeah. more what I mean, where their view may be true, but incomplete, if that makes sense. Well, I, I think that the re-examination is important to... Um, is vital to to the the character of the people going forward if there is such a thing and if we go forward um to be honest but um which is in doubt in in my view but it it's i think that the un, unmasking the liars and taking them off their pedestals is the work of all good people and i i as i was writing the book i became angrier and angrier about the lies i'd been told and about and i'll tell you this is the flip side of maybe of your question the heroes who have been denied us, there are remarkable people who are trying to do the right thing, trying to save what they could of civilization, of, 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 of their fellow man, of, of you know, their, their countries, who have been steamrollered and demonized by history. And frankly, I think we need a new pantheon. And if you want to call it a new ma national mythology, um, it might be that thing. I would think it's closer to reality, to tell you the truth. I think the mythology is is manipulative. And I have to tell you, I have a strange, ever since I wrote American Betrayal, I have this strange, um, strange uneasiness and discomfort every time we get to May. May begins the World War II anniversaries that are still acknowledged. We go from D-Day um, in my view, we go to the day that um, tens of thousands of American soldiers and British and Commonwealth soldiers were written off. I'm talking about the prisoners of war who at the end of May were written off as not coming home. Um, what do they call it? There's the um, dead but not retrieved, um, killed, K, KBR, is that what it is? Killed but not retrieved. Just written off, even though they were known to be in Soviet camps. Um, we go toward Hiroshima, which was absolutely unnecessary. The Japanese were trying to surrender since January at, at the at the latest January of 1945, and their efforts to surrender were were not heeded. Um, so we, you know, so I go through this series of, and then of course we have different um, different uh, Soviet incursions into uh, or allowing helping the, the communists in the um, in the uh, uh, Asian theater. So we have, you know, this series of, of dates that are continually misremembered and celebrated, celebrated. It's almost like a strange warlike um, uh, kind of frenzy even comes over people as we take all the wrong lessons from that war. People, you know, to this day, unconditional surrender. Um, you gotta, you gotta firebomb them into the dirt. I mean, all of these really vengeful kinds of of beliefs came out of this this mythology, which I call lies, um, that has taken us into terrible places to this day. So for me, the rectification is is a way is a liberation, and I always think it's better to go toward the truth, strive to find the truth, than to just cling to any sort of any sort of mythology, um, any sort of lie, and and again rediscover. Go back and figure out who really are your heroes and who 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 are not, 
and stop stop treating them that way. And and you know that would probably require in Washington D.C. A, a return to nature of the Franklin Roosevelt Memorial. But you know none of these things are going to happen, of course. But I still think that thinking people as as we exist going forward really need to be vigilant about facts in all times and and events. And this particular one for people who are interested is is a really great place to start because once you figure out kind of the key, you start seeing things around you contemporaneously in similar terms. You start on taking the lessons of, of seeing through the cant and the lies and the manipulations, and you can apply it to today. So for me, it's a very important lesson and um, process to go through. So I have a couple of more questions. Uh, first, um, when you say there's people that we we hold up as heroes that do don't don't deserve to be heroes, and people we don't we haven't heard of, or perhaps yeah. we demonize that we should hold up as heroes, maybe give us a couple of examples of each, because a lot of people will be hearing this and saying, okay, we're following the general outline, but those who haven't done the deep dive that you have, and to a lesser extent me, I've got your book. And then of course I've done a lot of reading on like in general, I, I took my degrees in history. So we did do a lot of research into sort of the intelligence yeah. war and stuff like that. Your book pulled together a lot of stuff I thought. So who are a few people that are forgotten that should be remembered and a few people who are currently remembered who should have uh, our view of them revised? Well, we've talked about a couple. We've talked about Roosevelt, certainly Franklin Roosevelt. Um, we've talked about um, Joseph McCarthy. I mean, frankly, they need to flip <laughs> in terms of where they are in society's estimation. If Joseph McCarthy was attempting along with, this is something people do not know also that I learned is you, Joseph McCarthy, a Republican Senator uh, was involved in, in uh, investigating the incursions of secret communists into mainly his big interest was defense related industries in the government. And, and the government, you know, this was, he thought it was not a good idea to have people working for Stalin inside the U.S. government handling national security matters, which I remember I once did an interview with a fairly um, young interviewer, and he said, you know, that's how I can go with that. That sounds like a good idea. But, you know, he's been demonized to such an extent that people don't even realize what his interest was in in doing this, um, this kind these kinds of investigations. But what I was going to say is, he was by no means alone in this. There were Democrats, there were Republicans, they were in the Senate, they were in, in the House of Representatives. And frankly, those investigators have been, um, these were all elected officials from America's heartland who came to Washington, tried to figure out what was going on in this multi-term, you know, Roosevelt to Truman, 16-year single Democratic administration, basically, in during which the government had been essentially seized from within. And then you have people coming from uh, Wisconsin and, and Arizona and coming to Washington, and this is not their business, trying to figure out what's happening. And they would hold these hearings and they, they were trying to get their arms around a very sophisticated, multi-generational intelligence army, if you will. And these people need to be exonerated. These investigators from Martin Dyes, 
through Joseph McCarthy, Senator McCarran. I mean, there's so many of these names. I, I should have a cheat sheet so I could give you those people who need to be re-examined and understood for what they were trying to do for the country. Um, other people would be in the war theater itself. Um, I know you're very familiar with George Earl. George Earl and his story is very important. Our friend Chris Farrell wrote a book about George Earl, who is also um, a, a signal figure in American betrayal, because he was the former New Deal governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Roosevelt, close Roosevelt associate. Roosevelt sent him to Europe during World War II with a pretty, um, you know, as an emissary, and he was operating very freely. And he learned, he learned what was really going on, and he was deeply connected and involved in planning this hope for German surrender. Um, as that we were discussed, he was that was one of the one of the um, uh, or he was involved in a few, but there were that was one of the um, uh, attempts. There were other men, other places doing the same thing. Uh, Admiral Carnaris, I believe, had had a, a secret trip to a Paris safe house to speak with um, the British intelligence, trying to do the same thing, and was also turned down. So these were going on. Canaris needs to be looked at. Earl needs to be looked at again and even known. They're not known today for what they were trying to do. Um, another thing that needs to be understood, too, is what happened at Nuremberg. Nuremberg is looked at as this sort of lodestar justice of that gives us the International Criminal Court of today, whereas Nuremberg was a farce because you had Soviet judges sitting on that panel, judging their erstwhile allies, the Nazis, on the same crimes that they were guilty of at the beginning of the war when they were allied with Nazi Germany. This is another, another massive piece of history that is relatively um, un, you know, misunderstood or not even acknowledged. Um, you know, where does that where does that take you, that kind of justice? Frankly, I think it takes you right to what we're looking at in Washington, D.C., where we have very similar uh, show trials going on with over the uh, defendants, uh, the protester defendants in the uh, going back to the January 6th, 2021 um, protest at the Capitol. So these things, you know, they live on these these tactics, these um, misremembered mis lessons. Um, people like Harry Hopkins, who is Roosevelt's top advisor, extremely important, one of the most powerful figures and unelected figures in Washington, for sure, ever. Um, he's He's gotten some hagiographies in recent year, years, even though there has been ample evidence that he too was operating as an agent of influence for Joseph Stalin, even as he sat next to Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, by the way, throughout the war at all their meetings. All, when Churchill came to Washington, the three of them would meet at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, this is how close he was to the action. Um, he needs to be re-examined. So there, there, there's a range of people. And I would say certain activities by the Western allies that have not been evaluated properly. And this would also go speak to Churchill's reputation. And that would be something called Operation Keelhaul, which is a horrific uh, war crime, crime against humanity, committed by the Western allies, specifically for Stalin. And what that entailed was, uh, was a period from about 1944 to 1947, whereby Stalin wanted um, the return of all uh, Soviet um, prisoners of war in the Allied sectors, the Western Allied sectors, and all Russian nationals, Soviet nationals, various nationalities claimed by the Soviet Union, 
even to the point of people who had never been Soviet citizens who had fled as white Russians at the time of the Russian Revolution. And this resulted in the return, the force, forcible return, this, this kind of um, ethnic cleansing, if you will, committed by the British and Americans chiefly um, to return forcibly from displaced persons camps, four million people, maybe more, to their deaths or their gulag which would lead to death, to their absolute ex extinction as, as free people, literally and, and certainly figuratively, but many of them were just killed right away. Um, this, is a, this is a war crime that was never looked at. And this is something that um, also included uh, slave labor as reparations to Stalin that was agreed to by Roosevelt and Churchill, things like that. I mean, I think we tend to lionize these, these leaders. We, we've seen so many World War II movies and, and you know, hagiographies, that there has to be an assessment of, of this kind of thing, because these people had too much, you know, too much power. This was a new way of making treaties. The United States had never undergone such a thing where the president would just go away and, and just do everything without any, any uh, advice and consent role, really, from the Senate, and, and keep secret um, many, many important parts of these treaties, these wartime treaties. So all of this really has to be looked at. I, I don't I don't expect it to happen, but I think as a uh, moral and intellectual bar, we should aspire to it. And, you know, come what may, it's, I don't think, mythology isn't keeping America together. I mean, we are, we are, we are falling very fast, as you may have noticed. Um, so it's not, there's nothing, there's no, um, there's really, it's really time to let the truth shine out. I mean, this is, what else do we have at this point? You know, it's, we don't have a whole lot. So who is the pushback on, on stuff like this coming from? Because there's a, in my view, and again, this was probably due to the circles I run on, but there's a cottage industry of books that I know have been controversial, but also deal with some of these unknown histories. So there's even a book uh, written by a Jewish journalist on, 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 on some of, uh, some of his fellow survivors who ran camps after the war. There's been uh, recent books on, on the forced eviction of, um, of German speakers from um, from areas like, like Czechoslovakia and the hundreds of thousands of them that perished in their forced removal back to Germany, which was at that point just basically acres of rubble. And some of them were summarily executed by by Czech nationals who were escorting them, etc. So I've read a lot of books that have kind of taken a, a good hard look at some of the, the war crimes that were committed by the Allies, especially in, you know, 45, 46, and even 47. Um, but what would be the primary pushback when, when American Betrayal came out? American Betrayal is published by a mainstream American publisher, um, and so, so it, the, the book and the thesis was accepted by a publisher that I was surprised when I saw who published it. I thought I would have thought they might've been more cautious. Who did, who did your primary pushback come from? Well, um, it was my second book with St. Martin's press and I had a, um, marvelous editor there, Michael Flamini, who watched the project grow and I couldn't have had a better a better working relationship. Um, you know, I, I was, I was, I was very free. I was extremely free. The only, the only thing that, that St. Martin's denied me was a bibliography <laughs> because they really didn't want any more pages added to the book, which, which was kind of a funny thing because I got attacked for not having a bibliography at one point, which was an odd thing to be attacked for. But, um, the pushback comes from, um, the, the, the narrative makers from academia, uh, from, um, the you know conventional wisdom. It, I'll tell you something. It's it it's a lot. If you spent your career 
writing hagiographies, writing the same stories, uh, the same narrative, writing these mythologies. And then you don't want to find out that you were wrong, right? Because it kind of trashes your, your book should be pulped at a certain point. If you've been so wed to narratives that you never looked past your secondary resources or never looked past the primary resources that are, are essentially uh, curated. And um, it's, it's, so there's, there's always a, uh, uh, a lag or a, or a pushback from that aspect of, of, um, of literary circles or historical circles um, or any kind of circles when somebody is challenging something that is very entrenched. So that's natural. What was strange was getting um, an, an organized uh, disinformation campaign about the book coming from the right flank. That was something I was not expecting. That was the biggest pushback from the book, uh, of the book. There were some in left-wing press, um, but it was mostly focused in sort of the conservative uh, blogosphere media um, and, you know, mainstream conservatives. And that was surprising. And it, it kind of took some, un, you know, getting used to it. And when I say disinformation campaign, I am not exaggerating because the campaign against the book actually had very little to do with the contents of the book. Most of the criticism of me and the book was um, not in the book or was just ad hominem. So it was a very strange thing to not be having an intellectual argument, which I expected and would welcome. It was not an argument about my, my interpretation of facts. It was creations of new facts that weren't in my books or new anti-facts, if you will. And then I was supposed to be so crazy as to have said certain things. And this was a hard thing to combat, especially because the uh, venues where this was taking place, for example, National Review, American Thinker blog, um, First Things, and so on, they would not allow me to reply in that um, in that particular outlet, which was very strange. I, I think that is is I don't know. I, nothing is is um, for the first time. I'm sure it's happened to other writers, but it was a very strange thing because I imagined a debate would then be allowed to take place, and for the most part. And because there were so many attacks, there were multiple attacks in these different outlets, um, they they very often I was not literally allowed to even write a letter or they wanted to edit my letter. That was a very strange thing also, which was bizarre. I was very fortunate because at the time I had a very good in over at Breitbart News, which at the time was one of the bigger platforms, much bigger, certainly than my own tiny blog. Um, I have a little outlet myself. I'm, I'm independent. I'm not with any other group. So I think my, my opponents, my critics were quite surprised that I was able to sort of have a big platform for my response. And then I was joined by some real heavyweights, um, notably M. Stanton Evans, whom I mentioned earlier. And then amazingly, Vladimir Bukovsky, the great uh, Soviet, um, former Soviet dissident founder, co-founder of the Soviet dissident movement in Soviet Union back in the 1960s, he weighed in with a magnificent lengthy essay that took in the book and the controversy, and he did it not once but twice. So I was, you know, this was a career crowning moment for me, really, when Bukowski uh, published um, in my defense and and um, his own glowing account of the book. So this was a very exciting moment and it kind of 
put a lot of the controversy to rest, but not always, not all of it. You can't believe how long it kept going. And, you know, I did get some rebuttals. It pub- I wasn't completely shut out in terms of being able to respond with a letter or something, but it was a kind of a, um, it was kind of a mainstay of the argument, which was very strange. So, or a managed response, as I recall, as I mentioned. So that disinformation campaign was um, a real revelation and involved a lot of people. And I will say ultimately made the book a lot more popular. Thank you very much. And gave me a lot new, a lot of new friends that I wouldn't have had and, and really expert friends, um, from, um, believe it or not, from the intelligence world, uh, old retired Cold Warrior types who became extremely interested in the book, heard about the book due to this strange disinformation campaign that was being waged against it. And I had one man who is since deceased, but he had been quite um, high in intelligence operations in the United States. And I just remember he was always a little elliptical. He's one of those guys when he talks to you. But I remember him once saying that when he looked at the uh, attacks against me, he said, you know, if I didn't know better, I would say that these originated over there, which I thought was a very interesting comment. (laughs) Don't know where it goes from there, but it, it it reminded him of a Soviet style attack, a disinformation attack. And Vladimir Bukovsky actually wrote about it in terms of this is what we would expect from Pravda. So go figure. One final question before I uh, ask, uh, ask you to uh, let our readers, uh, readers and listeners know where, where they can get a copy of their book if they're interested after hearing all this, is I know you got contacted by a lot of people. I've done, a, I've done some reading on your book after the book was published. What's the strangest experience you had after the publication of the book in relation to the book? You've just shared one about the, uh, the old Cold Warrior, but I know you've got a bunch. So I was just, what's the strangest one? The strangest, um, in what way? I mean, just in terms of. I guess the one that surprised you the most would be the easiest way to define that. Well, just you coming, well, just the attack on the right that was able to essentially silence most people. I mean, there were people, the, the attack started at Front Page Magazine, which is David Horowitz's website. And I, you know, had no relationship with him, or it wasn't anything personal, in other words, just so you know that, um, it, it came out of, le- oh, well, here's, here's the strangest thing. I got a good review at Front Page Magazine in, I want to say July. I was flying out to California to do, do some book events. One of them was co-sponsored by David Horowitz's Freedom Center, ironically enough, and um, also the Children of Holocaust Survivors um, Foundation. And so there was a co-sponsored event in Los Angeles. And while I was out there, I was going to be doing Glenn Beck and, you know, a couple of other interviews. And I saw, I got up on the morning of whatever it was, maybe I want to say it was early July and saw that front page had um, published a a favorable review by Mark Tapson, I believe. And I saw it on a website um, that I don't know if you ever see Ruthfully Yours. It's a news aggregator by Ruth King. It's a wonderful website, and I've you know followed it for many years. Anyway, she sends out her her selection of news and opinion, and I saw that I had a nice review there, and I from from Page Magazine. I thought, oh, that's nice. I got to go to the airport. So went out to California. Um, was starting to talk to whatever the producers were of the shows. If you have new reviews, I was asked, you have, what's your latest reviews? I said, oh, I've got a really nice one. I'm using my phone. I've said, I've got a really nice one here at Front Page Magazine. Uh, 
oh, I can't see it. Well, I'm on my phone. Maybe my phone doesn't show the whole website. I mean, I, I was trying to figure out where it was. Anyway, then I was just very busy. And then I did this event. And later on, I found out that they had pulled, David Horowitz had pulled the positive review off the website. Okay. Now that is a no, no. We know the internet is forever, right? That review is not to be found on the internet. They, I don't know how they, you can't even get it at archive.org. The only place you can find it is because Ruth fully gets up, Ruth King gets up early in the morning and she had cut and pasted it on her site. So it exists and I, I have a copy for whatever it's worth, but literally he pulled down my review and then basically wanted to withdraw his Freedom Foundation's co-sponsorship of my talk, which I had no idea this was going on. You know, you're blithely doing your events until later. So that was pretty hostile and pretty strange. Like if you want to, you know, it's very common for the New York Times book review, let's say, they don't like a review, they write another one, right? Mm -hmm. you, it, yeah. And that makes sense. If a book is controversial, why not have? Well, then you have a discussion and that drives readership. So it's exactly. actually everybody kind of wins. Exactly. But then there became this really ugly, what, what happened after that it was, it was a big gap. And I thought, well, maybe they just are going to ignore it. They just took the review down. And then in early August, one day, this thing, uh, I believe it was 7,000 words by Ronald Radosh called um, McCarthy on steroids or McCarthyism on steroids. Me. <laughs> I got um, that. Comes up. Sorry. I said, I got that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So McCarthyism on steroids. And, you know, frankly, they didn't know it, but I mean, I thought that was a great compliment. <laughs> but anyway, it was not, obviously it was a, it was a, a hideous slash and burn. And again, this is where this weird thing happens where things are not in my book that are discussed in the review. And that's a very hard animal to fight against. If people are putting stuff out and they're big feet and they have reputations and they are saying that I'm saying X, Y, and Z. And it's, and then they're even saying page. This was also, I would say one of the biggest surprises. He actually wrote down, this is Radosh. Horowitz wrote the title. He bragged about that at some point. Radosh um, actually put page numbers that were supposed to carry these crazy comments by me. And if you literally go to the page, it's not there. And, and at one point on my blog, I pointed this out. I said, this is so crazy. It's actually not in my book. I'm looking for this comment. It's not there. Did I say it? You know, you wonder, what did you say? You go, it's not there. And then, so he writes again and in another piece, like Diana West down Crackpot Alley or something, something nice like that. He writes, oh, I made a mistake. It's not on page 300. It's on page 200. And it's not. It's literally not there. And I, when I, I, you may have seen, I actually wrote a rebuttal. Um, I consulted a lawyer, a uh, First Amendment lawyer about this. And frankly, I would love to have, you know, explored it more. But he basically said, you know, it, you have to be, to, to successfully uh, sue somebody, you have to prove you lost income, basically, if you're any sort of a public figure. You, I, the, the rule of thumb here is that. And, you know, I... It, it was something I, I was not really prepared to do or really wanted to get too involved in, although it would, discovery might have been fun. But in the course of that, he, he advised me, he said, the internet is such that you have to rebut every lie he tells. And that was how I ended up writing about a 22,000 uh, 22, word rebuttal, which we published as the rebuttal and then with 
essays from others because um, it attracted so much attention. But the interesting thing was there is a page, if you want to see it, I'll send it to you. It's kind of all you need from the book where I'm quoting things line after line from this, this review. And I'm just writing, not in my book, not in my book, not in my book. And, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of a crazy making exercise because you realize what they mean by disinformation. It's, it's, it's really insidious. And so people who look at him or some of these people like Conrad Black or something, and they see what they say and that's all, and they can't even really understand it because these people write very, you know, kind of, it's very convoluted stuff very often. And they just sort of say, oh, well, clearly it's a terrible book. And they kind of move away. And he's, how do you fight someone who says, well, look, the guy says it's on page 300. It must be there, right? No one's going to go look. So that was probably one of the most surprising um, tactics I came up against. But um, in terms of, were you thinking of anything in mind? Because I'm, I'm not coming up with anything. Well, so like when a Soviet dissident weighs in on your book on a Soviet intelligence war, that's pretty wild to me. That's a pretty cool story. Oh, it's a very cool you know, story. Yeah, I wouldn't call it weird. I would call it sensational. No, that was the biggest thrill. I mean, again, that really was, you know, one of the biggest, probably the biggest thrill of my career was having Vladimir Bukovsky write that essay about American betrayal. And if you saw the piece, it's called Why Academics Hate Diana West. And essentially he is, he is explaining how hard it is for, um, especially non-historians um, who are not part of this club, but in his telling of the story, it's a wonderful essay. If you haven't read it, I'll send it to you. He explains how the, the professionals are beholden to the establishment. They are part of the establishment. They, they, they are essentially corrupted by being who they are. In, in, this is his argument. And so it's the non-historians who actually advance, make advances in the historical record. They're the ones who are most likely to actually come up with something new because they are not going for tenure. They are not trying to get access to something. It's, it, it's, it's, you have to be off the reservation to really break away from it. And um, so <clears throat> that was a really uh, fantastic thing to to have. Um, you know, he kind of weighs in at that point, and uh, it was um, it was fantastic. You know, it was just a uh, great experience. And I, I I got to you know I had a correspondence with him in the final years of his life. And sadly, he died in twenty October of twenty nineteen. And then later, I um, I actually gave a eulogy for him in Washington. Um, there's a group called the um, Pumpkin Papers Irregulars, and it, it was traditionally a um, gathering around Halloween of security-minded, cold warrior, professional writers, sometimes people from intelligence and so on, who would gather at the university club in D.C. and have this <clears throat> dinner. And I went a few times, um, the first time as a guest, and then the next time because of American Betrayal as a speaker. And then spoke a couple of times at that dinner, but the last time I was there, it, very sadly, my, my talk was about um, Bukowski, who had just died. And um, I don't know why this seems relevant, but the, maybe the year or so before, I was asked to talk about the death of Robert Conquest and the death of Alan Weinstein, who, who wrote an important his book. Um, and I mentioned that because I came into this field after all the greats were, were passed, 
And I think generationally, I'm not supposed to be here. I don't think anyone's supposed to be doing this. And I guess, I guess what I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I guess what I'm trying to say is when I started meeting again, these sort of seniors, these retirees um, who still cared very much, care very much about this, this field, I was kind of told that I was operating in the way of, and the, the person mentioned was a very noted anti-communist um, writer and, and, and investigator. He'd been a Hill, a Capitol Hill investigator in his earlier career as well, um, named Herbert Romerstein. I don't know if you know his name, but he, um, he and Stan Evans co-wrote uh, Stalin's Secret Agents, which is a really good book. It, it focuses on World War II specifically and does um, the kind of thing I'm doing in American Betrayal, but amazingly, we didn't step on each other. It was kind of amazing. They're looking at what the, the spies did as well. Herb ended up, I never met him, but he ended up um, having a stroke in the period of the writing. I think Stan did pretty much the writing. Um, but um, And he died, I believe, in 2012. But people told me that I was working kind of in his vineyard and I didn't I didn't you know I'd read his he wrote a um an important book about Venona called the Venona Secrets with Eric Brindell so I had that book and I sourced that book in American Trail but I'd never met him and I didn't I I was quite taken when I was told that and people were sort of noting that you know he had he had passed away and you know at an advanced age and I mean I'm no spring chicken but I'm not in that generation at all and I kind of felt like and then Stan died in 20 15 and Vladimir Bukowski died in 2019. And I was asked to do these eulogies. Now, I don't really know if you need to write about this, but it just, it just was kind of like, I was sort of left holding the bag, if you will, in a way, because no one else was doing this. And in fact, when Stan died, he left me some of his um, library and it includes um, some bound, um, uh, hearings from the House Un-American Activities Committee and also from the um, Senate um, Internal Security Subcommittee, some of the McCarthy hearings that he um, had, that he worked from. And when I opened them up, you know, I have them in my house now, but when I opened them up, I saw names of some of the major investigators from the day. In other words, one of uh, McCarthy's investigators, I think he was the last living one, was a man named James Juliana. I've got his name on a flyleaf of one of these books. And um, also, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. Um, oh, he's very famous. He worked for Martin Dye's committee, the House on American Activities Committee in the 30s, and for McCarthy briefly. Um, but I have his name on a flyleaf. So it's kind of like all this stuff filtered it just came by accident to me and you know it's it's it was a strange thing to realize because here i was sort of just very fast being very fascinated by the subject matter sitting alone i wasn't writing in conjunction with a foundation or in a seminar or in contact with anyone i mean really it was very much independent work and working with a mainstream publisher. And, you know, it, it just was kind of a thing that all of a sudden I found myself plopped in the middle of this, this extremely um, uh, kind of incendiary piece of history that I think was supposed to just 
stay as it had been. It was not supposed to be dug up. And I think that accounts for, for some reason, the rage by this particular group of people, which also included some of a couple of the, the, the people who are considered scholars of the archives, John uh, Earl Haynes and Harvey Clare. Um, Harvey Clare being a retired professor and General Haynes worked at the Library of Congress. He was a librarian of Congress. And the two of them wrote um, some books on Venona or they, they analyzed Venona in the eight, in the nineties. They um, did the Basilia um, notebooks in 2009. And I don't know what else they did. They did some other books as well, but they're considered very much the scholars of that, those documents. And they were as incensed about what I was doing as anyone else. And their complaint was not my facts, but my interpretation. And that interests me because if you see in American Betrayal, there's a little section where I seized on a review of Robert Conquest. Robert Conquest is another non-professional historian. Um, and I'm not putting myself anywhere near the class of Robert Conquest. I'm just saying he is a non-professional historian who also, the only, you know, our similarity is that we both upset establishment narratives, but I'm, I'm not putting my work in his class, just be sure you understand that. But he was reviewed and, and, and you know, smacked by everybody. Um, and one of the, I think it was in The Guardian, which of course wouldn't like his work, but it, The Guardian reviewer said, the quote is something like, we don't dispute your facts, old man, it's your interpretation. So it's like you're supposed to just look at the facts, but not conclude communism was evil, essentially. Or yeah, the the, the Manchester West. Guardian probably doesn't have the best track record when it comes to analyzing the Soviet Union. No, but it's exactly the same as the New York Times. You know, so it's it's not just a leftist perspective; it's across the board. And what I what I mean about it is that it's it's they're they're okay with exposing facts so long as you don't judge them. So long as Walter Duranty is the one writing them, or. Well, he didn't expose the facts, mm. really, but no. So no, long, I know that was a. So long as you don't draw a conclusion that communism in all forms is bad, communism leads to this. It's okay for this is a, a, a section in American Betrayal that actually Bukowski liked quite a bit. It's like the the idea, the idea of Nazism took us to the death house. The idea of communism took us to the death house. They don't like that. And I'll tell you, they don't like it to this day. There was a really interesting debate um, at a, at a Substack um, of, a, of a great journalist friend of mine named Celia Farber recently. And I was shocked to see people defending communism. It's, you know, it's kind of getting into the weeds for your purposes, but literally they're still, they're still upset about drawing conclusions about tyranny. And um, it, it's, it's very strange. And I think that's, that goes back to your one of your original thoughts or questions having to do with why this narrative exists. And it has a lot to do with the subversion of, of not just the government, but the subversion of education, um, the subversion of, of the arts and so on that controls what we think and how we interpret. And when you break that, you just get slammed. There's a situation in America right now with Simon & Schuster um, being protested for uh, bringing out a book about AIDS that is a contrary uh, story. Right now, I don't know the outcome of it, but ACT UP is protesting because Simon & Schuster wants to bring out a book. Um, 
you know, that kind of control. They, they just don't want you to go outside the lines because they lose control. So it's, 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 it's very deeply rooted in people and it's not unique to World War II or communist history or anything, but it's, it's control by narrative. And we've never seen it more. I don't think either in Canada or in America, we've never seen it more strictly controlled than it is today. It's very, very, very totalitarian what we're living in. And, uh, so it, it just seems to just be building on itself. So with that, where can listeners interested by this conversation get a copy of American Betrayal? Oh, well, that would be in um, anywhere you buy books, but certainly Amazon, which um, I know people have, you know, it's problematic to recommend Amazon, but they carry my books and that's where my um, audibles are for recorded books and my other works, um, Death of Grown Up. The Red Thread, which is sort of son of American betrayal, it, it examines the uh, ideological drivers inside the anti-Trump conspiracy and uh, my collected columns and so on, which is called No Fear. So all of that is there. And my website is dianawest.net. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Diana West, author of American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character and other books. Thank you so much for joining the show. If you want to listen to other shows or subscribe to listen to future ones, please head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab there. You can subscribe to our show wherever you get your content. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us again next week.